0: Hello everybody, you turn to Daniel chapter 7, if that's your sign in Murphy, we're for you, not against you. Um, it's exciting, it's an exciting night because we're at this huge transition moment in the book of Daniel, right, that so far it's been primarily history with a little bit of prophecy mixed in. And now as we go from, uh, get into chapter 7 through the rest of the book through chapter 12, we're going to see it's primarily talking about the end, like the end, with a little bit of history. And so this is a big transition because even the way that God is communicating with Daniel and the way that God is communicating with us through the letter has shifted. We're going from historical narrative to something that's called apocalyptic literature, which we'll talk about in a second. I don't want to just throw that out there. We're going to define these things, but as we take this step, you know, it's exciting because as Red Oak, we really haven't hit many portions of scripture that by and large deal with the end times. We, we've hit certain passages like verses and and hit it and talked in general about our hope, but we haven't really hit hard where this the last six chapters primarily are pointing to, yes, some of these things have already been fulfilled, but what they're ultimately pointing at is the end of this age. It's primarily pointing to the hope that we have in the return of Christ. So that's exciting. But as we take that step, man, we need to understand that this is one of the most debated and and one of the most, you know, like intensely debated topics in the Bible, which is really pretty ironic, right? uh, Doug Wilson is quoted as saying, the millennium is a thousand-year period of peace that everybody fights about. (laughs) That's ironic, right? The millennium, this whether you think it's literal or figurative, whether you think we're already in it or it's yet to come, like the, the, the reign of Christ and enjoying His peace and His rule and His reign, that should unite us. That is laid out for us in Scripture as a hope to unite us together in Christ that you and I, no matter what we face in this world, that we would face it with hope in joy and confidence knowing that this world is not our home knowing that no matter what happens to us in this world the worst the absolute worst that this world can do to us is kill us and that my friends is not the end because our hope rests in a risen savior who is now seated at the right hand of the power on high and he's returning to rule and reign forever. I was supposed to say that at the end, but there you go. (laughs) I hadn't even started my timer yet. It's gonna be a long night. All right, so there's irony there. I mean, this hope should unite us. So how are we gonna approach this? Because, I mean, we we don't wanna get bogged down in things that are controversial or that are gonna cause divisions. Like, this hope shouldn't cause divisions. It should unite. And so the way that we're going to approach this, our goal will be to not focus on the obscure and the debated, but rather on the clear and the agreed upon. We want to see in these prophecies what it teaches about Jesus and his kingdom, what our hope is. So we want to face this with, man, having a, a, a tight grip on things that we know to be clearly taught from scripture concerning the end. And then things that are more debated, I mean, let's agree together to be open handed with those things and to be gracious to one another when we don't see it the same. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right that we don't have a clear vision or maybe don't see things quite the same, especially when we're talking about things that haven't happened yet, right? We can be gracious to one another. So let's, let's set out with that goal in mind so briefly I want to talk about I mentioned that this is written in apocalyptic literature now it's at this point that you're supposed to squint your eyes nod your head and go hmm that's right apocalyptic literature along with everyone else I'll pretend to know what that means right people throw that stuff around and I make that joke because that's where I found myself in this study. Before I move forward, I was like, okay, I've heard that thrown around forever. I heard it in seminary. I've heard it when people preach on these things or when they argue about what these things mean. I've heard that used to defend against a position or to argue for a position or to belittle somebody else's position. I was like, but what are we really talking about when people talk about this genre of literature called apocalyptic? And so here's the deal, because my grandmother was a sweet lady, uh, one of the nicest ladies I know or knew. And, uh, or, no, she's, she's with Jesus. And I remember, you know, she, was all, she always just had good advice for me. She never said this to either one of my brothers, but whenever I would see her, it was like she knowingly would look at me and she'd say, Rob, kiss. And I'd say, Grandma? And she'd say, Keep it simple, stupid. It hurt my feelings every time, great advice. And so as I approach this stuff like, that's what I want to hold on to. I want to simplify this as much as possible and not try to act like I know more than I do. What we're saying when we say apocalyptic literature is this. We're talking about the second half of Daniel. We're talking about the book of Revelation. And we're talking about some places in Isaiah and Ezekiel and a couple of Psalms and some of the way that Jesus taught. And it's using a figure of speech typically in, in describing something that is either indescribable or that is still is supposed to maintain a level of mystery. And so, but when some people will say this genre of apocalyptic literature, you would think that there's this outside of the Bible, all this material that we can go to to help us understand Daniel and Revelation. And there are books written outside of the Bible that are considered apocalyptic. But all of those books were written after Daniel, before the New Testament and they were written under false names and they were written primarily like putting themselves across as if they were revelation from God. So for me, in approaching Daniel is I don't wanna try to interpret Daniel through the lens of people who just looked at how Daniel wrote and then used that type of language for their own agenda. I'm not interested in that. So what we're left with is a pretty good thing though. What we're left with is how we're gonna try to interpret Daniel is we're gonna look at how the Bible uses the imagery and the symbols that we're gonna find in this text. We're gonna see how does the Bible use this in other places, and that's how we'll determine as best as we can what God is saying to us through these dreams and visions that he gave to Daniel. Y'all tracking with me? All right, I'm I'm keeping it simple. It made sense to me, so it's got to make sense to you. All right, so here's a couple more definitions from smart people on uh, apocalyptic literature. And, and again, that word, it just means, you know, the last book in your Bible is called Revelation, right? It's the book of Revelation, and that's the same word. Apocalypse, apocalyptic, it's the same word. It just means to reveal something. So in general, all of Scripture is the revelation of God. He is, he's revealing truth to us. He's revealing who he is. And then specific to these writings is it's a revelation of the end times from the Lord. All right, so this is from a commentator. He says, biblical apocalyptic is a revelation of the violent end of this present age, which in any age, which in an age characterized by conflict, and in it repl- its replacement by the final age of peace. It shows us ahead of time the end of the kingdoms of this world and their replacement by the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. This revelation is unfolded in complex and mysterious imagery and has the purpose of comforting and exhorting the faithful. The last part's really important. The purpose. What's the purpose? The comforting and exhorting of the faithful. Um, a uh, pastor in Georgia, Adam Vincent said this, Apocalyptic passages are more like a stained glass window than a crystal ball. They give us a beautiful, magnificent picture of the end, but they aren't completely clear about the details. The imagery is meant to draw attention to the basic ideas, not to reveal precisely what will happen and when. One more. Logman says this apocalyptic is a metaphor rich style in this regard it is like poetry metaphors and similes teach by analogy they throw light on difficult concepts and things by relating them to something we know from common experience as such images speak truly and accurately but not precisely we often do not know where the analogy stops in this way Images preserve, uh, preserve mystery about ideas that are ultimately beyond our comprehension. So we'll see the way that, one of the ways that this book has transitioned is up to this point, right? There's been visions. There have been dreams. Y'all remember Nebuchadnezzar. He has, he has a dream. He has a vision. And it's Daniel who gets the interpretation from God for the king. We'll revisit that here in a little bit. But from this point on, it's Daniel receiving these dreams and visions, and he's the one in need of interpretation. So as we go through this, if you, and maybe you've been reading along at home, hopefully uh, before tonight, if you thought, I don't know what he's talking about. This is confusing. That's exactly what Daniel thought. So, I mean, we're in good company, right? So, but the good thing is God sends his angel To help us understand all right so as we make this transition though the main point of the book stays the same historical narrative to apocalyptic the main point stays the same the main point of Daniel is that God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of men and he is the savior of his people that's not changing if anything we just see it with more intensity especially tonight the focus of Daniel 7 right and daniel 7 is quoted or alluded to some 60 times in the new testament uh, most of those being in the book of revelation the kingdoms of this world will continue to rise and fall under god's sovereign hand these kingdoms always seek to oppose god and persecute his people the last kingdom ruled by the antichrist will be crushed and god will usher in the eternal reign of the son of man and his saints All right, so let's dive in. Daniel chapter seven, starting in verse one. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. So pause. So we've been moving chronologically through the book, right? So now we've gone back in time to the start of Belshazzar's reign, okay? So this is years ago. Daniel's somewhere in his 70s. So we've backed up. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were, stirred up, were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, there came up among them another horn, a little horn, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Y'all with me? Apocalyptic. Mm. Okay, Hang, hang, hang tight. As I looked... And the books were opened I looked I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking and as I looked the beast was killed and his body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire as for the rest of the beast their dominion was taken away but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time I saw in the night visions and behold With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom that all peoples nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, of which, in which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, And the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. And as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom Thus he the angel said as for the fourth beast there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces as for the ten horns out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them he shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. All right, so it's intense. It's intense, and there's confusing imagery and symbolism going on, but let's look. Let's just take it in stride, okay? So, what seems to be happening, right, is these beasts come up out of the sea. The wind blows, the sea is stirred up, and then these monsters come up out of the sea. Well, one we know from other passages in the Bible, like um, I'll just say these. We won't go there. Psalm eighteen fifteen psalm 89 9 isaiah 27 1 that oftentimes and more but oftentimes the sea sometimes it just means the body of water but oftentimes it's used as a picture as an image of the chaotic rebellious wicked nature of humanity of the nations and then the angel tells daniel in a minute you saw it a second ago The angel says, the beasts are kings who rise up out of the earth. They're kings and kingdoms that come out of the chaos of humanity in our rebellion against God. It's the picture he gives us. So these beasts, most people agree, most agree, that these are the same kingdoms that what the beast, each one represents is the same kingdoms that were represented in Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the statue, right? Do y'all remember that? Whoa. Don't worry, I'll tell you. So there's a statue. Nebuchadnezzar saw it in his dream, remember? It had a head of gold. And Daniel tells him, that's you Nebuchadnezzar, that's Babylon. And then remember it had a chest and arm of silver. And most people think that that represents the, the Medo-Persian Empire that followed Babylon. And then it had a, a, a stomach and thighs of bronze. And mo, again, most people agree that they, we think that, that that represents Greece that followed the Medes and the Persian, the Persian Empire. And then it had legs of iron. And again, most people agree. I'm trying to be specific because there's... It's written such a way that mystery is supposed to remain, and I don't want to tread too hard on that. But most people agree that this most likely represents Rome. And then if you remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream, a stone comes down, crushes a statue, and grows into a mountain, and who do we say that represents? Yes. Good job, Sunday School. Yes, Jesus, right? represents Jesus. And so now what we have is in this image, in this vision, we're getting a little bit more detail. We're getting a little bit more clarity, not as much on the beast and the kings and the kingdoms, as much as we will ultimately get clarity on the stone. That's what we're after. Remember, that's the purpose. If the purpose is our faithfulness in the midst of persecution because of our hope in our returning king, the more clarity that we get on who our king is and how he's coming for us, the more that purpose will, will accomplish its goal. So the beast rise up. So the first beast, this winged lion, we do. I, I believe this represents uh, Babylon. In fact, there's been gates from Babylon found and this symbol is on them like the, the symbol of a winged lion. So even at that time, for Daniel, that, this one probably wasn't super confusing. Like, okay, this represents Babylon. And then most people think with the bear, and, and some people think it's just a bear that's raised up, like ready to strike. Some people think it's a bear that's uh, just really lumpy on one side. Like it's bigger on one side, and they say, well, that's like how the Persian Empire was bigger than the the Medio, media media uh, empire and ultimately absorbed it. however, yeah, we think that's probably it and they were man, they were ferocious, they had already defeated kingdoms, that's why it's seen with the ribs in its mouth, and it, but it's told like you're not done, devour more, they take down Babylon, and then that's replaced by the leopard, another winged big cat, but this one has four heads, and so. A lot of people think that this is Greece, and we know that uh, the image of speed is being used here, and no doubt, when looking back from this point through history, and you look at what Alexander the Great did, it was phenomenal, not necessarily good, but phenomenal, the way that he overtook the known world and expanded the empire in such a short period of time, but he forgot to have an heir, and so when he died, his empire was divided among four generals and so people think well that's the four heads and there's other opinions but those are the predominant ones but then you have this fourth beast that's not even necess- doesn't represent an animal or not even a combination of animals but is just a monster right like it's just a monster that he says is more terrifying than the rest of them and it's got Iron teeth and bronze claws. It's Voltron from the 80s, right? Like, it, it, he, there's, no, there's no comparing it to earthly animals. It's just a monster, and he's terrified of it, okay? And so what's fascinating to me is that Daniel's like us. I think Daniel's like us. I'm gonna take a a breath. Thank you. Daniel's like us because he sees all this awesome stuff. I- incredible stuff, terrifying stuff. But what what's the most awesome things that he's seen? The Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. Can we agree? Yes. He's seen, in imagery, it's still a vision, it's still a dream, but he's seen a like personification of God and then the Son of Man riding on clouds. But when he... <laughs> When he saddles up next to the angel, he goes, um, so tell me what's going on here? And he starts to tell him and he goes, uh-huh, uh-huh. I wanna know more about the horn. What's with the horn with the eyes who's speaking blasphemy? Like, what's up with him? And I say we're like this because what's the main point of the passage? The Ancient of Days, God on his, he's literally got a chariot throne with wheels of fire and fire issuing from the chariot and we go I want to know about the horn this is what we do with prophecy we want to press the details in the wrong place and but what the angel does if you look through it it's not that he dismisses the question it's not that it's unimportant it is but it's not the thing what the angel keeps doing is pushing his attention back to the king and the kingdom and so, yeah, is it worth having conversations about the horn and, and the kings and the ten horns and look at what different people have said over the last 2,000 years? Yeah, it's worth having that conversation, but it's not the main thing. Hold all that with the, with the open hand, but with the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, don't only hold on to it, keep your eyes fixed on that because that is from where our hope comes. That is how we'll be faithful when we we are faced with real persecution over our faith. That's how we'll stay faithful when we're tempted to give in and to live our best life now and to be comfortable, to be entertained to death. How do we avoid that? Keep your eyes fixed on the Son of Man. The angel isn't concerned here with naming the kings of the kingdoms. Likely the same four that we discern from chapter 2. But the point is the pattern of ungodly, saint-persecuting, God-opposing kingdoms of man. Duguid says this. The beast of the present world order may change their shape as the centuries pass, but their violence and lust for power continues. This continual presence of the beast in our world ought not to surprise us, because every human manifestation of evil is simply a reflection of the work of the great dragon, Satan himself. The focus of the chapter as a whole is not on the monsters themselves. The purpose of the passage is not to give us nightmares, but to calm our nightmares. The focus of Daniel 7 is on the coming day of divine judgment when these monsters will finally receive justice and God will win the final victory. So we see with these beasts, and one of the reasons why I didn't, don't want to press too hard about the final beast being Rome is because I believe that, but I, I wouldn't argue it, wouldn't fight with you over it, unless you just really got on my nerves and I was being contrary, you know? Like the, because the point is, you know, for Jews who were living after this period, who had Daniel, there's no doubt when they're back in the land, and then you've got this guy Epiphanes, uh, I can't say his first name, but his middle name is Four, this guy Epiphanes comes in and he goes into the temple and desecrates it. And no doubt, all of the Jews who had read this thought, he's the little horn this is it. This is the end. The Son of Man should be coming. But then fast forward, and Jesus, who quotes Daniel 7 a lot, especially in Matthew 24, he uses this to talk about still future events from his standpoint. And no doubt, Christians who lived like that generation in AD 70, when Jerusalem's being destroyed, and and Nero is persecuting Christians no doubt they said he's the horn he's the little horn with eyes and a mouth that blasphemes and persecutes God's people and wears them out this is him and I think yeah there's a pattern there's a pattern we've talked about it all along it's the main point of Daniel that yeah God raises up these kingdoms and they oppose him remember we've talked about the spirit of Babylon when we looked at when we looked at Daniel chapter 3 and how Nebuchadnezzar made that statue all of gold, what was he saying? My kingdom shall never end. What did he do? He gathered people from every tribe, nation, and tongue and language and had them worship him. And if they didn't, they were getting thrown in the fiery furnace. And we said, that's the spirit of Antichrist. That's a king who wants to oppose and take the place of who Jesus is. And we know it. It's a counterfeit, it's a counterfeit kingdom that pattern has continued all the way through human history. So, yeah, when the Jews saw that, they should have thought of the little horn. When the Christians saw what Nero is doing, they should have thought of the little horn. Was that the final thing? Was he the Antichrist? End of story? No, I don't believe so. Why? Because it's not the end. The end hasn't happened yet. But that pattern has continued. The kingdoms of men are opposed to the rule and reign of God. The spirit of Antichrist, John himself, said in his epistles, yeah, Antichrist have come, many have come, many will. They oppose Jesus. They pervert the word of God. He says, many more will come. Will there be a final Antichrist? Yeah, I believe so. I believe that there will be a final kingdom that from the other side of it will be able to say, yeah, that's that's the terrifying beast, The 10 horns that we learn in a minute or we read it together that represent 10 kings, I don't know who those are. Some people do and they got charts and names and you know, but I'll I'll just say this and I don't mean to be ugly because I do. I mean, I want to be generous because those people are smarter than me. They're better studied than me. But I'll say this, those sermons don't age well when you start making names, when you start naming horns. Those sermons don't always age well. But I believe there'll be a day when we'll be able to say yeah that was the final beast that's the beast of Daniel 7 that's the beast of Revelation 13 and that was the little horn and how do we know it because right after that Jesus came back and there won't be any standing around saying see I was right or you were wrong we'll just be worshiping Jesus thank you Patty so are you all with me If you disagree with anything I say about the end times, please email me at spencer at (laughs) swoutfitters.com. be be glad to field all those questions and concerns. We need to be remembered, reminded, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. I believe that, yeah, the little horn That Daniel wants to know about. I I believe it. I believe this is who John calls the Antichrist. I believe this is who Paul calls the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians. I believe this is what he's doing. He's persecuting God's people. He's opposing God. He wants to change God's laws and seasons. Ultimately, what does the enemy want to do? He wants to divert worship from Yahweh, from Jesus to anything else. He'll receive that and he wants to pervert his word. And so, I'm gonna jump ahead here and say this. I wanna avoid two ditches with this. I wanna avoid the detective ditch, right? Where, where we see the details of this type of writing and, and begin to look for clues so that we can unmask the Antichrist. Like like it's an episode of Scooby-Doo and at the end you pull off the mask, and you're like, you're not a monster, you're the principal. Now, and you, you would have got away with it, but for us and our dog, right? Like, that's not our job. Our job's not to play detective with these clues to unmask who the Antichrist is. Now, on the other side, I don't want to be the dismissive guy who pretends like those details don't matter and say. Oh yeah, man, people have been naming antichrist and the last kingdom and people have been doing that every generation and, and it doesn't age well and it doesn't sound good after a while and, and you, no one can really know, so I don't want to dismiss it because then I'm beginning to sound like what Peter warned against when he said, that's how lost people talk. When you talk about the return of Christ, it's lost people who say, oh yeah. <laughs> Didn't you say you are expecting him any minute? It's been how long, 2000 years? Is he slow, is he slack concerning his return? We say, no, he's not slow, he's not slack, but he's just not willing that any should perish. He's coming. He doesn't sleep, he doesn't slumber, he doesn't take vacations. Jesus is coming back. The only reason he hasn't come back is because he's not leaving anybody behind. He is going to call his elect from every corner, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. He's not leaving him behind. That's why he hasn't come back. So let's make sure we don't fall into those two ditches. The main point, though, is for us to be watchful, to be prepared. Prepared for what? Prepared to suffer and witness well. To look for Jesus, to hope in his return in his kingdom. So listen to briefly to Revelation 13, one through 10. I think it'll be up behind me. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and with ten diadems on its horns and a blasphemous and blasphemous names on its head and the beast that I saw was like a leopard its feet were like a bears and its mouth was like a lion's mouth and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority one of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying who is like the beast and who can fight against it and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 2 uh, i'm sorry for 42 months and it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God blaspheming his name and his dwelling that is those who dwell in heaven also was allowed to make war on the saints. Sound familiar? And to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and every people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. So this pattern continues. And it will find its ultimate fulfillment one day. And our job, again, is to look for Christ. While the beast rising out of the great sea can be identified with successive kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, these same symbols might be used elsewhere to refer to something else. Apocalyptic literature tends to work in regular recurring patterns. For example, the pattern repeats later in Revelation 13. In John's apocalyptic vision, all four images refer to a single kingdom, David Helm says Rome, as the centuries pass, these images can identify various kingdoms that oppose God, but never in isolation from the spiritual forces and power of Satan that lies beneath them and from whom they derive their power. All right, so we're talking about earthly kingdoms, earthly kings, who, yeah, spirit of Babylon, spirit of Antichrist, Satan himself, empowering them. There will be persecution of God's people, his saints, that must be endured. But our hope is that the power and authority of these monsters is limited. The time of judgment will come and the true king will deliver the kingdom to his loyal saints. We trust in the wisdom of the ancient of days and in the salvation of the son of man. The enemy is limited in both his power and, the, and time in trampling the saints of God. Right? So we saw that at the end of the chapter, as the angel's describing what Daniel saw, he says, yeah, the, the horn is attacking God's people. right? He, he's, he's wearing them out, but it's limited. It's limited. He, it's said that he has time, times, and half a time. Okay, And so, and there's much debate, I'm not gonna go into it with the time we have right now, but there's much debate on what that means But if nothing else, the main point is that the Antichrist, Satan's empowered king, is limited in both his power and his time to be able to persecute God's people. That will come to an end. And that is being contrasted. His kingdom, his power, his authority, his persecution is being contrasted with the eternal reign of Jesus. His authority, his dominion, his power is greater. So that's where our attention is supposed to go. So let's look at it. Verse 9, the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days. As I looked, thrones were placed. All right, so multiple thrones. Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So we see, we believe this is God the Father. Again, this is vision, this is dream, and he sees the white hair, the white clothes, the the chariot throne, the fire. What's this representing? What what, what do these symbols mean in scripture? This is talking about God's wisdom, right? God is all wise. God's purity. He is righteous. His judgment represented by both the fiery wheels that, in, that this warrior king judge, that his judgment goes forth and he can go anywhere, that We know in Revelation 19, Jesus is seen with eyes of a flame of fire. What's it saying? It's saying that he will judge and he sees all. He knows all. He knows our thoughts. He knows our works. He knows our deeds. He knows the motivation behind what we do. He sees all and he will judge. Fire is always a picture of God's judgment in these types of contexts. He's coming to judge, but his judgment is pure and righteous, just, and good. Listen to this. This is from Dugid, my favorite commentator's name to say his chariot throne flamed with fire and its wheels blazed, representing the divine warrior's fearsome power to destroy his enemies. Here we see a judge who has, here it is, the wisdom to sort out right from wrong, the purity to choose the right, and the power to enforce his judgment. Do you see it? Books are opened. And here the immediate judgment is on the Antichrist his followers, this king. But it's a good place to pause, right? It's easy just to say, Satan, demons, men, they're going to experience this river of wrath. That They'll be condemned, that they'll be destroyed, that they'll be thrown into hell, the lake of fire. But when we say God's enemies, that used to be us. That was us apart from jesus in his first coming that's us and apart from your repentance and your trust in christ alone that's you and yeah this is a picture it's an image but what it represents is true god is the eternal judge and he sees all and he knows all yeah he has the wisdom to judge rightly and he will In fact, he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And he's made that known and for sure by raising Jesus from the dead because it's in fact through Jesus that he judges the world. The final judgment's coming. We're gonna see it. The dead will be raised. That's that's a closed-hand doctrine teaching from the Bible. Jesus is returning final judgment and punishment are sure the dead will be raised everybody ever the dead will be raised and will be judged based on their deeds based on how they lived and our only hope our only hope is jesus which is a really good hope but don't be deceived god is not mocked but did you, I mean, did you feel it when we read through this and the horn is blaspheming God when we read it from Revelation? The venom of the enemy towards God? If you're a child of God, man, that, should, that hurts. It's offensive. Not offensive like I'm gonna jump on social media and blast somebody, like offensive like I hurt because I love God. I would hurt in the way that if you said something ugly about a really good friend, How dare you talk about him like that? Don't talk about him like that, man. He's a good dude. Okay, times a million. How how can you talk about God who's wise and pure and righteous, whose love, who's only demonstrated his grace and mercy to those who don't deserve it? How can you talk about him like that? And do you see it? God's not mocked. Don't, Don't be deceived. Just because the world seems to be going on just like it has for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And just like it seems like those who love wickedness prosper, just like it seems like the most corrupt people are the people who have the power and have the money. Don't be deceived, God is not mocked. Judgment's coming. Jesus is coming. The day of the Lord's coming. Thankfully, there was already a day of the Lord when Jesus absorbed my river of wrath that I, reserve, I deserve. It washed over him until the river was dry. Now in his love for me, he has diverted the infinite river of grace and mercy towards me. Jesus himself said, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It's it's almost comical, this great, this horn speaking great things, and then in between these two visions, right, of the Ancient of Days and what we're about to see with the Son of Man, verse 11. I looked then because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and his body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and time. Game over. God wins. It's not, a, it's not a battle. God doesn't sweat. God doesn't bleed in this fight. He just wins. It's over. I saw in the night vision. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So no doubt Daniel's confused when he sees this. Again, he's like us. He, he goes after the details about the horn, but he should be confused because if he understands the Old Testament, which he did, like I think there's over 70 references to God riding clouds or being represented by a cloud, his power and glory being tied to a cloud, and it is always God, Yahweh, God the Father, The act of coming, this is from a guy named Collins, the act of coming with clouds suggests a theophany of Yahweh himself. If Daniel 7.13 does not refer to a divine being, then it is the only exception out of about 70 Old Testament passages. Passages like Psalm 104, one through four. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wing, wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Psalm 68, four. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is Yahweh. And rejoice before him. Coming on the clouds is a clear symbol of divine authority. In the Old Testament, God alone rides on the cloud chariot. What is more, when this son of man comes into his presence, into the presence of the ancient of days, he is given authority, glory, and sovereign power. This son of man also receives worship of all peoples, nations, and languages. We know. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus. This was Jesus' favorite title for himself. Over 80 times in the gospel, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Jesus wants us to know he's the Son of Man from Daniel 7. Jesus wants to be clear that it's him who rides the clouds and receives the glory, the dominion, the the kingdom that is everlasting he's the one alone huh. is he worthy we sang that is he worthy huh. who is worthy to open the scroll jesus who has the keys to the kingdom jesus yeah he's worthy He's a son of man. So this is vision, but listen, he's coming into the presence of the Ancient of Days, riding the clouds. So let me ask you a question, Red Oak. Where's he coming from? He's coming on the clouds. Where's he coming from? The ascension, right? Acts 1, 6 through 11. We know this. So when they had come together, they asked him, The disciples are like us too. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, listen up, Red Oak, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took them out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way. How did he go? On the clouds. How's he coming back? With the clouds. He will come back in the same way as he saw him go into heaven mark adds in mark's telling he was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of god remember thrones were set down the ancient of days sat god the father and who sits next to him jesus the son of man the son of god the god man god alone rides the clouds god alone comes at power and glory and authority and has the right <laughs> he alone is worthy to execute divine judgment. Remember the night Jesus is betrayed and he's standing in these mock trials. Mark 14, he's before the Sanhedrin. Mark 14, verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he, Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven and the high priest tore his garment and said what further witness do we need you have heard his blasphemy what is your decision and they all condemned him jesus as deserving death you see it is this crazy it's crazy You see how backward and twisted this is? The high priest who should have recognized the son of man standing before him, he says to him, are you the son of the blessed? Are you the Messiah? Are you the king to come? And Jesus says, I am the son of man and you'll see me sitting at the right hand of my father and coming the clouds. What's he saying? Things will get put back Right? temporarily that man stood in judgment over jesus and accused jesus of blasphemy what's happening in reality Oh, the days coming when jesus will be seated on his (laughs) chariot throne of judgment and this man will be given an account to jesus for his blasphemy The key to understanding Daniel's vision is to realize that Jesus identifies himself for us. This is confirmed by the fact that Daniel 7 is cited or alluded to over 50 times in the New Testament, the vast majority of these coming from the book of Revelation. 600 years before our Lord's incarnation in the womb of the Virgin through the power of the Holy Spirit, Daniel sees the heavenly glory of that rock seen by Nebuchadnezzar who will crush all the kingdoms of the earth whose kingdom will never end. His kingdom is contrasted with those of the beast. It's one of honor and glory. It's eternal. And do you see it? We share it. We share it. The angel keeps emphasizing it. The key verse in verse 18 but the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever forever and ever it says it again verse 27 and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high his kingdom shall never or his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and his dominions shall serve and obey him. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So what do we do with this? I've already said it. First point of application. Fix your eyes on the heavenly scene, on the Son of Man enthroned and returning. This is our hope. This is our hope. We should live in view of the imminent return of Christ. Second point is, simple question, are we ready? Are we ready for the day of judgment? This is like old-timey sermon. Are you ready to stand before your creator and give an account for what you've done with your life, whether good or evil? The books will be opened and the content of your life can't be hidden. You will judge, be judged by God for your thoughts, your words, and your actions. Or you will be judged by God for the thoughts, the words, and the actions of Jesus. And that's available to you through repentance, faith, trust, in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And the last point is this. Persecution. We need to be ready, remember? What's the, pur- the purpose of all this? To prepare us to suffer and to witness well for the name of Jesus in a world that hates God, hates the gospel, a world that will never truly be at home in. revelation 1 4-7 john to the seven churches that are in asia grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from jesus christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth to him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he who is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. We'll rejoice. We'll rejoice. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, love you. Thank you for the goodness of the gospel. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to save us, that you humbled yourself and became an infant in the womb of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. And thank you that you're coming again in authority and power, riding on the clouds to execute your judgment. I pray, Lord, that we would be like Daniel and that that would grieve us that it would grieve us because we know that means that people will be judged I pray that it would motivate us to share the gospel to share the goodness the news that you came to rescue us that you came to redeem us that we can be judged based on your life and not on our life I pray that you'd save souls tonight and I pray that as a church we would grow in our awareness of what the enemy is doing so that it would in us an urgency to fix our eyes on you and to set our hope only on you and not the things of this world. I pray now that you'd receive the worship that you alone are worthy of.